Our New Testament is starting in 1 Peter chapter 4 again, but we will be looking at 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 11. But I would like to remind us of our context yet again. Starting at chapter 4, verse 11. And as you're turning there, I want to reminisce a little bit about my life at GE. When I first started at General Electric, I had to wear a tie. Shirts and ties were required, dress clothes. Managers wore suits. Uh, workers did not wear suits. The managers' managers wore nice suits, and the managers' managers' managers wore hand-tailored suits. And if you got uppity and wore a suit when you were not when you were one of the inferiors, you would end up being on the blacklist. And the same for managers who wore too nice a suit. Because it was the status, it, it was the clothing of glory that proved your position in the company. And you could tell who somebody was by the way they were dressed. And we all like to live that way a little bit. I was very happy when Jack Welch said, burn the suits and ties, they're barriers to communication. And the tie came off and my neck was free and I could breathe. And I didn't injure myself anymore because I actually was injured by my tie once. But we, we do that figuratively in the way we, we carry ourselves, the way we talk, the way we act, the way whether we're willing to serve or we expect to be served. And that's really what we're looking at today in our passage. So keep that in mind as we get down to chapter 5, verse 5 and following. Not. Beloved, start, oh, starting 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of old of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So exalt the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you shall receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace 
to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the appropriate time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written you briefly, exhorting and declaring that that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one one another with a holy kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ. And so, as we come now really to the conclusion of the book, he calls on us to clothe ourselves with humility. But he starts the passage at verse 5, which some of you may have in the paragraph associated with the elder. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Likewise, or in the same way. He's shifting his thoughts from specifically talking about elders to now broadening it to the whole church, but he's connecting them as well. Just as elders are to behave a certain way, so likewise the rest of you. This is the beginning of some instructions that we'll see as we go through. But note that he says, be subject to. The younger be subject to the elder. The be subject to is the same word and the same theme we've seen repeatedly in 1 Peter. Back in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So be subject, we saw this, to every human institution, to the authorities God has established. And verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. So again, subjection is in mind. Everyone to authorities, servants to masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So again, another, be subject to authority that God has established. And of course, all authority will be subject to Christ, Uh, Chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, speaking of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven as the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Same word. And so now in this passage, we come to a fourth commandment in the Christian world, the Christian life, of being subject to somebody. And that subjection means you acknowledge their authority and their place, and you submit yourselves to them. 
Now here specifically, it's the younger be subject to the elder. Uh, elder there is the same word at the beginning of the chapter, talking about the elders of the church. But some people like John Calvin see the antithesis between young, younger and elder to be talking about age, not about the office. And according to them, then the intention here is that young folk should respect their elders in age. Uh, and, and that's good. Leviticus talks about that, Leviticus 19.32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of the old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. And so clearly it's a good idea to honor those who are older. But I don't think that's what's in mind here. Remember what's said to Timothy. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, Command and teach these things, the doctrines that was being given to Pastor Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth. So while Timothy was an elder and a pastor, he was not an old man. He was a young man. But he was thoroughly trained by Paul himself. And so he was quite knowledgeable and He's being commanded here, do not let them despise you for your youth. That would be common, but not allowed. But he says, but set the believers as an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And so he is to do the work of a pastor, not be despised because of his youth. I don't think it's saying that he should then submit himself to the older men in the church who are not elders. That's, I, I don't think that's the right interpretation. I take it as a reference to the office. And then the meaning would be here, likewise, as I have commanded the elders or overseers, the shepherds of God's flock, not to be domineering in their leadership, but to lead by example. And so unless the young and especially look at the weak example of them being servants and being humble and despise them and refuse to submit to them. He says, especially to the younger, or when we were young, we were more prone to do this, reject authority. He says, to the younger, I command you to be subject to the elders, to the overseers, because that is what God requires. They're being called shepherds and overseers in this passage. And remember in Hebrews thirteen seventeen we saw the command to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I think the idea here fits both in the context and in the verse to take this as the younger being reminded to submit to their elders, especially because he is calling them, the, the elders, to be humble in the way they treat the people, not to be domineering. You know, our people, really our sinful heart, has a problem respecting and honoring and submitting to leaders who are too humble. Moses was described as the humblest man on earth. And Miriam and Aaron rebelled against him and despised him. What, did the Lord only speak through you? So through us too. We can do this job better than you. You're, you're too inferior. And the people were willing to back them, apparently. 
We think a true leader is somebody who's great, who's wise, who has dignity, self-respect, able to command and compel others. And so we end up despising leaders who seem weak in our eyes. And humbling yourself, admitting your faults, is considered very weak. I remember when I was in Asia, in Singapore, I was trying to get some information about a seminary that was being, Bible college, that was being supported by the church there. The church there was very godly and Bible-believing, and they wouldn't really give me any information. It turned out that at, the, at that Bible college, if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't a Christian. And they had a lot of other bizarre things, and they, they had all the teachings of Joyce Myers to distribute to you. Uh, they wouldn't tell me this. Why? Well, to save face for their pride and for the pride of their church. They weren't humble. If they were afraid that if they admitted, oh, we've been supporting these people and they've turned out to be totally crazy and unbelieving and they, they don't respect us as believers, the church would probably not follow them. But that's what we're called to do, admit our faults. You know, which of God's people, of God's great heroes in all of the Bible do we see as perfect? You know, we've talked about Abraham recently betraying his wife by throwing her to the wolves to protect himself. Uh, David committing adultery. You know, we have in the scripture the honesty and the integrity of the truth laid out, but that does not make Abraham less a friend of God. It does not make David less a man after God's own heart. You know, the elders were supposed to be humble, but people just don't want to follow them. Remember the problems Paul had with the Corinthians? You know, the super apostles were coming in. They were much greater than Paul. Paul was nothing when you look at him. They were great. I remember somebody put a mime together years ago between the great Bible-believing pastors of history and the great heretics of history. And all the heretics were beautiful, and all the Bible-believing elders were, well, let's just say they were ugly enough to make me feel more self-confident. Uh, you know, that's the way it often works. And Paul was having great trouble. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20 and 21, he's really rebuking them harshly. He says, You bear with it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. You know, the domineering leaders of this so-called super apostles who were probably enemies of the cross as described by Paul. And he says, to my shame, I must say that we were too weak for that. And then he goes on to, bo- you know, if they're going to boast, I'm going to talk like a fool. I'll tell you why I'm not nothing, even though I am humble. Uh, his humility was in keeping with his knowledge of God and with his knowledge of his own sin. And their arrogance was stirred up by his biblical humility. He says, I'm speaking as a fool, as he boasts, but note the contrast. His humility inspired the wicked to even greater arrogance and pride and more domineering behavior. And the people were willing to submit to that, but that's not what God wanted him or any believer to do. Yet they despised him even though he had worked miracles and brought them to salvation because these other people seemed greater. 
Another example would be David and his wife, Michael. Michael. Second Samuel chapter 6, we hear the story of David bringing the ark of God to the city of David, to Jerusalem, where he has now established his kingdom. And as they do this, he is dancing before the Lord with all of his might in a great celebration and a great procession leading the ark to the new location in, in the capital. And we read in verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. He was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the horn. And the ark of the Lord came to the city of David. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Why? Well, down a little further. Verse 20, David returns to his household to bless his house. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now he is wearing a linen ephod, not a king's robe. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. But that is typical. Here he was, the king of Israel. He should be glorifying himself. And instead, he's humbling himself before God and glorifying God and celebrating God's goodness. And she despised him for it. And that's, that's common in our hearts. We look at leaders who humble themselves and we think, oh, they're weak, they're worthless, they're contemptible. Be it leaders of a country or a church or even of the house. We need this reminder constantly that the leader is supposed to be humble. We looked at Jesus' humility in John 13 last week, and I want to remind us again. John 13, verse 5, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So it starts off with the reminder that Jesus is Lord of all, and Jesus is doing what he's doing with the full knowledge that all things are his, that he is the Lord of all, and that he'd come from God and was going back to God. He rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and proceeded to do the work of a slave, a servant. And we remember what happens after that. He washed their feet and he says, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. So he's telling them, I am your teacher, I am your Lord. And yet I have taken off my outer garments, wrapped a towel around myself, and served you as a slave washing your feet. And he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as, I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a master greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So he basically told them, I, as the Lord, am serving you. That is why I have come. Now you might ask, where was his dignity? Where was his self-respect? Have you ever been asked that when you serve somebody? Do you have no self-respect? You're serving somebody? But that is what Jesus did. He laid everything aside in heaven and came to earth to serve us. Should a true leader wash their feet or should he have compelled one of them? Hey, you're the lowest of the group. Get down here and wash our feet because we're going to have dinner and we need to have our feet washed. Uh, many men seem to think and that that is what the leader should do. Many women think that that is what leaders should do. They should be strong and bold and compel others not to serve themselves. But he did it even though he was their overseer. He took off his three-piece suit, put on a towel, and did the work of the servant, even given who he was. Were the apostles somehow made superior to him by his doing this? Was he made contemptible by serving us? Now that is why he tells us that the greatest among you must be the servant of all. Because that is what God is looking for. But subjecting ourselves to the humble requires really that we be able to humble ourselves as well. So he continues on. Clothe yourselves in verse 5. Every one of you, every individual of you, with humility. Now this every one of you is not just the elders, not just the leaders, not just the young. It's really a universal command to every believer. Every one of you should humble yourselves. In Micah 6, 8, we read, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So we should be clothing ourselves in humility, take off our proud, glorious, hand-tailored suit, wrap the towel around our waist, get on our knees and serve, just like Jesus did. This humility we need to clothe ourselves in is not a prayer. We don't say, we don't accomplish what, what is being asked of us here by getting on our knees and saying, God, give me more humility. Um, that's not what we're being asked to do. And it's not some feeling we have in our heart. Oh, I, I feel inferior to these people. That's not what we're being asked to do. We're being asked to do what Jesus did, to take that fundamental attitude that I am here to serve. I, I serve God. I serve his people. I serve everyone in the gospel. I am a servant as well as a leader, perhaps, of my home or of the church or of the company. And so this is really a fundamental heart attitude that we saw in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Paul did this and Jesus did this. And Moses, he really was humble. But he also did this in that he worked for the people. Even after Miriam and 
Aaron had sinned against him by trying to take over and embarrassed and humiliated him publicly, he was praying, oh Lord, please don't punish them. Because he understood his place. He was counting their needs greater than his, even though he was greater than them. Even though Jesus was greater than the apostles, they needed him to serve them. And so it is a heart attitude, and we must be humble from the heart, serving others as Jesus did. In his foot washing, in his ministry, really in his whole life, it was all about serving sinful man. And sinful man doesn't want to serve others. We want to be served, not to serve. Um, We do this humility from the heart by taking orders from others. All of those be subject to passages are about obeying the commands of those who are in a position of authority. And that is requiring humility. We have to be humble to do that. And another one is fitting into the arrangements and plans of others, as opposed to you know thwarting their plans to show who's in charge. Uh, I remember a wife who's wasn't very submissive to her husband in her heart, but she was outwardly making a show of it. And he was never on time for church because on Sunday morning, she would have this or that to do. It didn't matter when she got up. She would start getting ready too late because she was demonstrating to him that she had the power over him. Now, we laugh, but we all have that kind of a heart attitude at times where We're not going to submit to their plans. We're not going to be part of their organization. Our pride says if they're going to force us to submit, we're going to thwart their efforts. We're going to oppose them and show in reality who's the real boss. And so in humility, we need to consider fitting into the plans of others, even if there are inferiors. If it's their plan or if it's their their obligation to take care of these things, we need to be willing to be a part of it. And all of these things, really doing good to others is what's at mind. Caring about their needs, their problems, their issues, their labors. Our humility is being treated in this passage really like a second set of armor. Clothe yourselves in humility. You can think of humility as the clothing you wear under the armor of God. Uh, We were told to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6, 11. What are these armor of God? Well, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet made ready by the gospel, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You know, all of these things we put on to resist the devil, as Peter tells us in our passage. But this humility is something that ties them all together and is worn underneath them as a heart attitude. It protects us really amongst all of our sorrows, all of our sufferings, as we try to live a holy life in an unholy and hostile world. And so... Peter here is calling us to humble ourselves, clothe ourselves with humility. And note that he says, especially under the mighty hand of God. 
We read in Proverbs 3.34 that towards scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. That's probably the proverb Peter quotes in this passage. And probably the proverb Peter's, Peter and James in James 4.6 are quoting, where James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We need to clothe ourselves in this humility to really experience the grace of God to endure these fiery trials that we have to deal with in our lives, these refining trials. God's mighty hand, God's sovereign hand is at mind here. God is sovereign over all things. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God means humble yourselves under what is happening to you, under these trials that are happening to you. We know from Ephesians 1.11 that he works out all things according to the counsel of his own will. And that being the case, when we are under the sovereign hand, mighty hand of God, whether it be chastisement for our sins or a refining trial that has come upon us or a trial of some purpose of God that we don't even know, we are to humble ourselves under that and praise his name because he is really also sovereign over the deliverance from that. If you think back to the Exodus, we see God's mighty hand referenced many times. Uh, He says in Exodus 3.19 and following, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with the wonders that I will do in it. Excuse me. So God delivered them by his mighty hand. And I think that's what's happening, talked about here. (coughs) Excuse me, I'll take a cough drop. They were delivered by his mighty hand. And they were humbled by his mighty hand. They had no power to deliver themselves. And they had to see that God's power was great and could do it. So the question to us is, do we willingly, actively, cheerfully subject ourselves to all the things that God sends our way? Knowing by faith that he's sovereign over them. Knowing by faith that we can handle it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation, no refining trial, the same word, has overtaken you but what is common to man. And God is faithful that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may endure it. (coughs) Peter is talking about that way of escape in this passage. And that way of escape starts with humility in all things. Of course, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we're also remembering his promises. All things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. We humble ourselves under his hand knowing that he is able to work it out and that he is intending to work it out and that it will work out for our good.
Peter also says, casting all our anxieties on him. You know, from the time we were children, we've been saying, I can do it. As we get older, we say, oops. And eventually we say, well, not so much. Jesus says in Luke 12, 25 and 26, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you're not able to do such a small thing, why are you anxious about the rest? You know, why be anxious? We don't have that power. Humble ourselves under the hand of God and trust in him. Matthew six thirty one and following. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. <laughs> but no, God isn't out to get us. He knows our needs. He's promised to meet our needs. But he calls on us first to do something else, and that is to seek his kingdom. And God does offer us comfort in our anxieties, which is why we should give them all over to him. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Psalm fifty-five twenty-two. We are called upon to give our burdens over to him. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land in faithfulness. Delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still, therefore, before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers his ways, over the man who carries out his evil devices. That was Psalm 33, verses 3 through 7. We are promised that he will give us the comfort. He will give us the relief. He will give us what we need. He will keep us from being moved. We just have to trust in him, turn it over to him. Truly, as the psalm says, the Lord is my strength and my shield, in him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and, my, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Psalm 28, 7 and 8. You know, the Old Testament, the New Testament, they all speak to the same thing. Trust in God. Turn your cares over to him. Do what is right before him. Commit your way to the Lord. Delight yourself in him. Do what is right. And he will sustain you and care for you. Don't be anxious in these trials that come upon us, even though the devil is loose. Now, we know about the devil's binding in Revelation 20. The angel comes down. Satan is bound. He's thrown into the pit. It's shut. It's sealed over him that he may no longer deceive the nations. That is not happening at this point. Peter is saying the devil is prowling about like a roaring lion. Uh, I remember somebody telling me, well, the devil is bound with a long chain. And that always makes me think of Tom and Jerry. I remember Tom, the cat, standing there bullying and teasing the bulldog. 
The bulldog comes running at him and hits the end of the chain and stops short. And Tom prays around, taunting and praying. We can't do that. Satan is not bound like that. He is free to devour us. And he is looking to. You ever hear the story of the ghost in the darkness? East of Kilimanjaro, there's a desert called the Savo Desert. And they were trying to build a railroad through the desert. And the railroad started to fail and got behind schedule. And the British Lord, this is in Kenya, who came out to see what is going on, why are you guys failing, discovered that these two lions were hunting the people down and eating them. And apparently 135 people were devoured by these two lions. And you can imagine the people trying to build a railway. The railway was derailed by the lions eating them. What did they have to do? Well, they had to be looking around. They had to be very cautious. They had to be very sober-minded, very careful, very diligent to avoid being food for this lion. Well, I think that's the idea here with the devil. He is prowling about like one of those lions. If you're careless, if you're indifferent to sin, if you're not sober-minded, you allow yourself to get excitable and explosive, he's there seeking to devour you. You must resist him. So we must resist the devil. We're not talking about that bizarre charismatic teaching that says you all believers have the power to bind the devil. And they stand up and they say, I bind the devil. Um, I was reading about that and the man was joking. If you have the power to bind the devil, then it would be sin for you not to have him bound all the time. And we should never be bothered by the devil. If you can actually bind him, then bind him completely for good. And we're all safe. If you don't do that, then you're allowing the devil to hurt people. And that would be sin. Yeah, that's kind of a joke. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what James talks about. In James 4, 7 and 8, James says, Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. How do we resist the devil? By submitting ourselves to God, by doing what is right, by turning away from sin, by being sober-minded, being watchful, being diligent to avoid the sins which the devil can use to trap us, to devour us. And that's why Peter says here, be sober-minded and watchful. Jesus told his disciples in the garden, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew twenty six forty one. We should give the devil no opportunity to devour us. Ephesians four twenty five and following. We're told, therefore, put away falsehood. Let each of you speak truth to his neighbor. For we are numbers of one another. (coughs) Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but earn, but labor. Do honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. 
goes on to say, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away. How do we give no opportunity to the devil? By putting away all those sinful things in our lives so that the devil cannot use them to attack us, to devour us. That is what it means to be sober-minded and to be watchful. Peter also speaks of this. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. How? Well, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What does it mean to be sober-minded and prepared for action? Be watchful. It means not to sin, but to turn yourselves fully to God, to hope in him, to give up on the sins and pleasures of this world. And which he continues to talk about in chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. Live the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And then in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, Peter is teaching us this principle that we resist the devil by being holy. We resist the devil by resisting the temptation to sin, by being self-controlled, sober-minded, holy living people. But he also adds to this, resist the devil firm in your faith. If we humble ourselves and accept our trials are from God and we accept them without grumbling, we know in faith that he's true to all the promises he's made, including the one given here and in Luke 14:11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter's just repeating Jesus' teaching. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James 4:10. If we humble ourselves, Jesus will be faithful to his promises. But we receive that by faith. That exaltation may come in the next life. We don't get to see it. Faith is believing in the things we cannot see. And thus, firm in our faith, we humble ourselves knowing that God will exalt us in time. So as Peter said in Chapter 4, verse 12, the first one we read of our reading today. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial. We should realize this is a normal thing. And if it's a normal thing, it's not normal for me only. It's going to be normal for all the brothers, which is why he mentions knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, we by faith, understand these things and are comforted in them. But we also know that our brothers have the same trials. And no matter what our trial may be, there's somebody out there who has the same trial and probably somebody who has it worse than we do. And so we should be thankful for God's grace 
thankful for the refining that this can bring to our lives and not be grumbling against him. By faith, we know God is with us. God loves us. God will preserve us. God will bring us with him without fail. And no matter what's happening in our lives, by faith, we know this and we can stand firm, resisting the devil. We should therefore be able to humbly say, thank you, Heavenly Father, for all things, even our sufferings that Peter has been talking about throughout his entire letter. And after you have humbled yourselves, Peter goes on in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, humbling yourselves in your suffering, the God of all grace will come to you. These fiery trials are normal, but they're brief. After a little while. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Whether we are dying of cancer or suffering with Parkinson's or some other being persecuted, facing death, facing prison, facing torture and murder at the hands of God's enemies. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Light and momentary. It doesn't seem that way to us now, for sure. They don't feel very light, and they feel like they're lasting far longer than we would want. But compared to eternity, and all that is promised in heaven, and all the great glory that we have waiting for us, these are light and momentary afflictions. And so after we have endured them, the God of grace who called us to his eternal glory will be with us. His calling to us was one that was free and unmerited. It is a gift of salvation, gift of eternal life with Christ in heaven, and it's waiting for all of us. And really in this, we see God's character revealed to his people and the way he treats them and the way he deals with them. The words here, restore us, carry the idea of being brought back to the point where we are fit, where we are fully trained, we are fully prepared, we are fully equipped for something. We'll be made ready and confirmed. It means to be set firmly in its place, fixed fast, unmovable, strong, strengthened, and established. The word established there means really to lay a foundation and make something stable. So in other words, once we've been properly refined by our fiery trials, the God of all grace will make us certainly ready for him, for that eternal weight of glory that is coming. And these are just short Temporary trials we have as strangers and pilgrims in this world. Notice the last verse of this section. A little bit of phrase. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ's dominion is very important in our standing before our trials. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God of Gods. 
his sovereignty over all things, as we saw back in Ephesians 1, is really where a lot of our hope comes from. He's sovereign over salvation. Peter says he caused us to be born again. He's sovereign over our trials, therefore our refining, not for random events. He's sovereign over our suffering and that he cares for us and takes our anxieties upon himself. This is why Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. His lordship is really the source of much of our confidence, of much of our hope, of much of our strength. Comes through him. As Christians, we really need to have the right attitude to endure our trials. The right attitude of mind towards each other, the right attitude of mind towards God. And that attitude is true biblical humility. True subjection to God, true subjection to his word, true subjection to everything that he commands us, including when he commands us to be subject to others. In humility, we, obey, we, we need to embrace these refining fires and obey God's word, resisting temptation, so that we resist the devil's trap. And we can do this because we are certain of our place in eternity. You know, if it was doubtful, if I had to worry about, you know, God loves me today, but I sin tomorrow and then I die and I don't go to heaven, I am going to be hopeless. I'm going to live my life in fear. I remember funeral of a woman that was a member of uh, Pastor Pine's church. And he was telling us that in the funeral, they could offer no hope for her. They didn't know whether she was in heaven or not because they didn't know where she was when she died. You know, whereas we, we know the Bible, we know that God has promised that if we truly believe, if we truly belong to him, we have that hope. And thus, we can resist the devil. We can endure trial as we have a certain hope of a reward waiting for us in heaven where moth and rust and thief cannot touch it. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that in our own strength, and our own power, we cannot add a day to our life, an hour to our life. We cannot save our own souls. We can accomplish very little. We cannot even save ourselves from our trials. But we also know, Lord, that you are Lord, that you are God, that you are sovereign over all things, and that you have called us to humble ourselves before you, to humble ourselves under your hand, to humble ourselves with our brothers, to live lives as your son did, lives of service for one another, that your kingdom might be advanced and your name might be glorified. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us, teach us to set aside our pride, to deliberately, intentionally humble ourselves before you and before each other, that you might receive the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.